We acknowledge that we are on Treaty 6 territory, the gathering grounds of many diverse First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples, whose footsteps have marked this land and whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Hello, and welcome back to Research Recasted, the Knowledge Mobilization Podcast. I'm Megan Miskiman, and I'm here with Renette Schaubert, and we are joined by our guest today, Katrina Yazinski. Katrina is a student in the Bachelor of Design program here at McEwen University. Thanks very much for being with us here today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I gotta be honest, I'm really looking forward to this topic. I feel like it's something we haven't had on the podcast before up until now. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about it before we uh, make our guests wait too long? <laughs> sure. Um, so I am working on my design capstone project, which is sort of an applied research where we choose our research topic and then turn it into sort of a practical deliverable. So I'm really passionate about clothing and our relationship to fashion. I'm developing a print magazine based on my research, uh, talking to people about their clothing and ways to build and strengthen our relationships with what we have, sort of as a counter to consumerism, but looking at it in a more positive and joyful way. Well, that's fantastic. So I want to start by maybe give us some of your background. What got you into this and where did the passion come from, like the drive to to move forward with a project like this? Yeah. Um, so I've always been interested in fashion and sewing. Um, my grandmother taught me how to sew when I was in like junior high and I always took like the home ec classes in school. And then after high school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And so my fashions teacher was like, hey, there's this program, human ecology at the University of Alberta, and you can do clothing and textiles major. So I did the clothing and textiles degree with a fashion merchandising minor, which was mostly in like marketing and that kind of thing. So I learned that I didn't want to be a fashion designer. Um, that's a whole nother thing. And it's not really my gem. I like, you know, following instructions and using fabric and color to make stuff for me, but it was more about personal expression and less about actual business. And so as we live in Edmonton, it's not really like we are big fashion capitals. So I ended up kind of using that marketing side of my first degree, but really always had that creative spark. And so that kind of turned me into design. And when I was given this capstone project, it was kind of open-ended. Um, we could choose any direction that we wanted to do. So I was like, well, why don't I pull in this thing that's been a huge part of my life and meld it with design and research and kind of turn it into this um, big passion project. Yeah. And did you ever, uh, <laughs> I think you did, <laughs> did a good job combining both of those things. Um, so tell us a little bit about the, the research, the mm -hmm. research itself and, and the project. Yeah. So the research I wanted to do be a little more like informal talking to people and just getting a really like personal look at relationships to clothing. And so I conducted like a lot of interviews with people, both, professionals in the industry, people who, you know, sell secondhand fashion, people who have their own slow fashion labels, as well as people who are just regular consumers and just love clothing to express themselves and kind of getting these different perspectives. Um, I also had people do like a, a photo survey. Uh, I selected just a couple people and I was like, okay, take a photo of something that reminds you of someone you love or makes you feel most yourself. And it was just really interesting to get these like intimate looks into people's lives and closets and the things that they pulled and why, um, you know, I got this leather jacket when I was in my twenties and it makes me, reminds me of my youth or I wore this dress at my birthday party and when I met the love of my life and like, and it just really emphasized how important that thing, you know, people think clothing, it's just something you grab out of your closet and wear, but it actually is such a deep personal part of our lives. It's so close to who we are. And so, um, yeah, that was just like a really interesting thing. And then using that as a jumping off point of like how to communicate that to people and kind of draw people into um, thinking about their clothing in this deeper way to sort of care for it and promote longevity and sort of think about, you know, fast fashion we're all aware is such a big issue of overconsumption. We're buying more clothing than ever and we're just throwing it away. And so how can we take these things that these little moments that are so deep and like talk to people about it and get people to think about their clothing regularly in this way? Yeah, absolutely. I really like what you said about how people have these attachments to clothing. Um, it's it's not just that fast fashion poses a sustainability issue. It's it's you know we actually do have these these links to our clothes. Mm -hmm. um, I really like the examples that you provided. And I mean, I'm somebody who I, I'm on a podcast, so people probably don't realize I wear this, almost the same thing every day. <laughs> and I like it so much that I actually own multiple ones. Like I have probably three of these black turtlenecks because <laughs> I just love them so much. They make me feel yeah. like me. No, and that's wonderful. Like to jump ahead in in kind of assembling this magazine, one of the people that I ended up talking to and featuring in an article is someone who's doing their master's in human ecology with an identity uniform. And so she actually like sewed this piece of clothing um, 
in a way that like approaching the way that you're thinking of uniform, this is how I dress myself every day. And so she kind of, you know, was doing her research about creating this garment that encapsulated what that uniform is. And so that was like a piece of content that I was like, oh, this is really cool to like put into part of this project and like looking at those kind of ideas and perspectives. Yeah, absolutely. So what, uh, what about the magazine? Mm-hmm. Like how, how does the magazine fit into all of this? And, and have you started it yet or? Yeah. So this is the whole first semester, the whole fall semester was all about the research. And now this winter semester is all about putting everything together. So yeah, it's in production right now. So I sourced a lot of content speaking to the themes that people sort of identified in the interviews. And so, like I just said, um, I did an interview with my friend researching and who crafted this, um, uniform, but I also, um, found some content about clothing care or like how to, you know, reinvent your wardrobe with what you already have, as well as doing some photo shoots, um, using secondhand clothing and styling. And so kind of pulling from my networks, but also the internet and other people that I know and putting it into a published piece. So I'm hoping to actually print it. Um, it'll be about 20 something pages and then kind of Yeah, featuring that all together. I have to say I'm really excited that you opted to do a print format Um, because coming from communications, I know all we're taught is that print is dead. (laughs) It totally isn't. No, I, yeah, I love print. I love magazines. Um, There's a particular magazine that um, is an inspiration for me. It's called Warren Fashion Journal. Um, It was published from 2004 to 2014. Spoiler alert, I'm an older student. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, same, it's all good. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And it looked at fashion from like this really intelligent kind of way. And so I just loved just the way that was Prince and holding it. And in my research, I came in, we did like a visual analysis. And so I just had this stack of magazines and people were like, where did you get these? And I was like, I just, I, I love it. Like, I just had these. I've collected them over the years. Anytime I'm traveling or at a bookstore, I find really cool independent publications because I think there's such a value in seeing something in your hands. And it kind of inspires that longevity piece as well because everything digital, you know, you scroll away and it's gone. You can't find it again. Um, magazines, you can hold them, you can reread them, you can cut them up, you can turn them into other things. And so having it be just this tangible product it's just, I don't know, there's so, so much value in that, I think. So I really wanted to bring that into this project because I can hold it in my hands. I can give it away to people. I can kind of share the outcome of all of this research. Well, and it's almost, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it almost sounds to me like you opted for print too for that, uh, what's it called? Like almost like a like textile wise, like mm-hmm. fabric, when you're touching fabrics and you're looking for fabrics for a particular piece of clothing, or um, I know your background's in sewing and actually crafting these clothes. Mm-hmm. So that probably was part of it too, no? Absolutely. Yeah. And in my analysis, like I kind of looked at, yeah, d- different kinds of paper. Is it glossy? Is it matte? Is it, of course you, you did. Know? <laughs> and I actually, yeah. And I went to, over reading week, I went to the printers that I, I'm going to work with and they brought out all the samples and they made me a little mock-up of like, how does it feel in your hands? Because it's so important rather than just like sending it off on an internet printer and just like, hope it comes out. Okay. <laughs> just wanted kind of, yeah, that control over what the experience will be like. Wow. So I want to just go back to uh, back to some of the actual project here. What were you able to find out from your research that you that you've done? If you're allowed to talk about mm-hmm. it yet, or do we need to wait to get the no, <laughs> no, absolutely, I can <laughs> talk about it. Um, the thing that I found is that just this universal idea that clothing is about self expression and that the consumption of it is not really the biggest piece. I think it's just people are trying to find ways to communicate things about themselves, um, who they are, and also who they used to be. Like a theme that I didn't really, like I kind of knew, but I didn't really think is how often, like in my transcripts and my notes in the surveys, um, the ideas of mothers or grandmothers or like heirlooms, these pieces of our past coming into who we are today was very common, even though counterintuitively that we're buying so much new stuff all the time, but such a big part of what we think about our clothing and the things that are most special to people are things that we've had for the longest amount of time. Hmm. So it's like pieces of clothing that were passed down or uh, things that maybe were purchased by the grandmother or... Yeah, exactly. Or like, yeah, like um, usually things that were passed down were more like accessories, like bracelets or scarves or that kind of thing. But yeah, or um, I went shopping with my mom and we we bought this or, you know, this was her favorite color. So this made me think of her and this is why I love this, this garment kind of thing. So there's a, a large sentimental aspect to this project. Absolutely. Or I guess your results in yeah. the project. Yeah. Well, that's very cool. Was there anything that came out of it that maybe surprised you or um, if not, was there anything that came out of it that made you feel more understood, I guess, as a lover of clothing and fashion when you were interviewing all these other folks? Yeah, I think the thing was that 
understanding that not everyone is as nerdy about it. They don't really care what the fabric is called or where it was made. But that if you really start talking to people about it, they do care about it. Um, even though they might not think that, you know, oh, I don't think it's that important. But if you get them talking about it, it's actually a big part of their lives. And so that was just like a nice reinforcement of like, this is a topic that isn't just frivolous and fluffy. Um, when I began the capstone, I was a little bit worried, you know, some other people's projects are, they're working with community partners, they're working with marginalized communities, they're working with, you know, social activism. And I was like, oh, is this, is doing a fashion magazine, is this just like a fluffy, frilly little project that is more just because I want to make something that looks pretty. Um, but it was really validating and that people were willing to give their time and really thoughtful responses to this, that it's not a frilly, fluffy throwaway kind of topic. It was something that's really meaningful to people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and and like you said, when it comes to research, you you don't really get it until you go and speak to other people. You don't really know what the what the outcome's gonna be or what the response is going to be because it's so important to you. And once you've found that passion in yourself and driving yourself, you're like, okay, now to convince everyone else that this rocks. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> so how about what's next for you then and, and in terms of this project? I know you said the magazine's currently in production and you had spent your reading week uh, testing out sort of the uh, the product itself. Yeah, so right now I have most of the content together. So now it's all putting it together in kind of cohesive spreads, you know, organizing the typography and the photos and the layouts and putting that all together. So, and in a way that, you know, it feels like a full system from the story to story and it kind of pulls you through that narrative of, okay, I have all these ideas and these pieces and these images and how can they come together to kind of be that full piece and then getting it printed and then sharing it with everyone. That's super cool. And you must, uh, you, you must have been uh, really proud to sort of like have that sort of in your hands, like these little tangible pieces, like you said, mementos of all the work that you've done and just look at it and say, oh my gosh, I researched and then I made this. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm really excited to have that final piece of like, this was in my head. I knew it was going to be a big project and a lot of moving parts and they're all coming together. And so it's like, oh, that actually happened. Awesome. <laughs> so is this something that you coming into the design program kind of planned on doing or were you introduced to the fact that you could do sort of this undergraduate research while in the program and just took it, took it by the reins and went? Yeah. Um, doing a magazine was always something that was just in the back of my mind just generally, but I knew that it would take a lot of time and effort and work. And so in the program, when um, I realized how open-ended the capstone projects could be, I was like, well, if there's ever a time in my life where I'm going to try and do a solo issue of a magazine, this is the time and place to do it. So um, yeah, a little of both, I guess. <laughs> and how's your experience been with just undergraduate research here at McEwen? Oh, it's been really good. The The capstone program and sort of the professor running our, my my little cohort of the class, Costanza Patcher, has been really great at sort of guiding us through the process of the research and making sure, you know, that we're engaged and excited about it and connecting us with resources and giving really great feedback and bringing donuts on presentation day, like just making us feel like we're doing like real good design work here. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, the donuts are a, a bonus, obviously. Yeah. That's <laughs> I'd show up for donuts anytime. Oh, that's really good to hear. Thank you so much for being on our podcast today. It was an absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you so much for having me. This was great. Hello, and welcome back to Research Recasted, the knowledge mobilization podcast. Today's episode involves topics of sexual violence. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Megan Miskiman, and I am here with Renette Schaubert, and we are joined by our guest today, Madison. Madison is currently in her fourth year of the Bachelor of Arts Honors degree in psychology, being supervised by Dr. Sandy Jung as she completes her research thesis. Madison also volunteers with McEwen's Maven Peer Education Program. Thanks so much for being with us here today. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. Um, so obviously by the disclaimer, this is a, this is a different different topic than what we've had on the, on the podcast before. So why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your research? Um, so my research really focuses on campus sexual violence. 
Um, Particularly, I'm looking at how people like perceive those who have committed sexual violence on campus. Oftentimes, like it's really great. We've got like a lot of positive move forward and there's like a lot more talk about how to best um, support survivors of sexual violence. But unfortunately, the other side is a little bit neglected. Um, So I'm kind of looking at um, how students and staff perceive people um, and how those perceptions could influence their their behaviors with those people. Okay. Yeah. 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 How did you, I guess before we, we dive right into it, how, how did you get into this topic? Like what was sort of your motivation? Well, I always liked um, like forensic psychology. I always thought that was really interesting. I always like like true crime and stuff like that. And probably a little bit of a morbid curiosity, frankly. And then when I got into university and I started looking into the honors program, I was looking through like the different supervisors and I saw Dr. Sandy Jung and I thought lots of the stuff she was doing was really interesting. Um, And then when I started learning about like risk assessment, I thought it was super um, really interesting and really, really helpful because there's so many um, kind of like misconceptions people have about uh, sexual violence, like what it looks like, what's most common. And when you have a lot of like misconceptions, it can lead to like biased decision making. And I just really thought it was interesting that we actually have like tools to kind of cut through that bias. Um, And that's kind of what pushed me towards looking at um, risk assessment like in a campus setting because there really isn't any risk assessment tools for a campus setting. Um, Campus sexual violence is very different from general sexual violence. It's very specific, right? It's young people. It's not, you know, generally like strangers. It's very, it's more intimate and it's um, not the same as more um, broad forms of sexual violence in a lot of ways. Yeah, I we actually spoke to Dr. Uh, Dr. Jung. We had her on the podcast, and uh, and we discussed risk assessment briefly. So maybe just to give us a refresher, can you explain? what that means. So risk assessment, there's basically like three different types of risk assessment. So you've got um, basically just like a professional judgment. So that's me looking at a person and saying, well, I think you're high risk. I think you're low risk. Then you have like a structured professional judgment. And that would be something where there might be some risk like factors that are given to you. Maybe a risk factor could be um, you don't have a relationship or maybe risk factor could be number of previous offenses, something like that. But at the end of the day, you still make the judgment. So you're looking through the factors, but then still you as the professional or the person making the risk assessment, you get to choose whether they're high or low risk. And then an actuarial is like removing that judgment side. So instead of it being something where at the end of the day, you're still deciding, you're really just totaling a bunch of risk factors and saying, okay, well, this person scores a one, that means they're low risk. This person scores a six, that means they're high risk. So in the context of like campus sexual violence, nothing like that exists beyond just a professional judgment um, because the risk assessment tools that we have for offenders really don't apply to campus. Um, Lots of the questions are like, have you had a relationship for two years? That doesn't apply. Lots of people are 18 years old. This might be their first time living away from their parents, or they might still live with their parents. Questions like um, your employment history. Some people have never worked. Exactly. (laughs) So people could be incorrectly labeled as low risk when they're not. So it really doesn't translate. So we're kind of dealing with a lot of judgment calls, and those judgment calls always are prone to bias. Even if someone has spent a lot of time dealing with people who have committed sexual violence, bias can still seep in there. Yeah, absolutely. So back to your research, Madison, what can you tell us sort of about your thesis so far? So my thesis is looking at basically um, presenting students as well as a um, post-secondary staff sample. So they recruited from across Alberta. Basically, they're presented with a description of an on-campus sexual assault and they're asked to rate um, the likelihood that this person will commit other non-consensual sexual acts. And then they're also asked to suggest which um, sanctions or punishments they would think are the most appropriate. So, um, for example, one would be like a written reprimand on the student's permanent record. Another would be like expulsion, which would be like the most severe one. 
um, and just seeing like looking for variations in that as well. Okay. Okay. Uh, and you were saying that you're looking at McEwen students and staff, right? Yes. In this research? Yeah. When you gave out these surveys, are these based on true statements that have been uh, provided from McEwen's history or? Uh, yes and no. Okay. I did work with um, the Office of Sexual Violence uh, Prevention, Education and Response, mouthful. And I kind of like asked them to like help me through something that's typical, Mm -hmm. no names, no exact examples, like what kind of words would be used in a report. So it's based on like what would be typically seen, Mm -hmm. but it isn't based on anything that's that's real. Okay. And in your working with that Office of Sexual Violence here at McEwen, what what sort of trends were you able to to find from from after you distributed this survey? Um, Well, it's a very preliminary. I haven't actually gotten all the data back yet. I actually have to go and do another, um, a little bit more recruitment for the university sample. But we do see that there are some differences between students as well as um, employees. We also see that risk, really everyone just kind of rates everybody high risk no matter what. Interesting. So... It's really interesting because we don't see any differences in risk, but we do see differences in sanctions. And we don't necessarily see that those things are connected, which I think is really interesting. So, you know, someone who rates someone as high risk might not necessarily be more likely to give them a more severe sanction. So those things aren't as connected as I expected. Um, And also we see a little bit of a contradiction there because we see students actually rate the individual, the respondent, in the case of campus sexual violence, the perpetrator is generally referred to as a respondent. They rate them as lower risk, but then they also are more likely to assign more severe sanctions. Whereas like the university employee sample rates them as higher risk, but less severe sanctions. So it's kind of interesting that those things aren't really that tied to each other. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting too that uh, I guess the sample, like, like that there is that trend in staff versus student also, there's probably a large age difference there, I would assume, too. Absolutely. So it's almost like you almost wonder what other factors go into that. Yeah, it's like a, it, there's a lot of things that could be happening. It's, you know, one possibility is that, you know, a student is much more likely to be victimized by a student who gets more lax sentencing or disciplinary action. So they might be more inclined to support more um, freedom-limiting sanctions but at the other other side there, there could also be, you know, the fact that generally speaking, we are overestimating risk of reoffending okay. for um, people who've committed sexual violence generally. So maybe when you're older, you're more aware of that. Like there's a lot of things that could be happening, but it's really difficult to like tease those things apart. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I have to say too, like I really, I find your research very interesting Um because you've almost taken that devil's advocate standpoint, which anybody who's listening to this who knows me and knows my personality knows I'm in my element with you there because I will always, you know, okay, but guys, what if we thought about it from this standpoint? So I think it's really interesting that you're taking a look at how the respondents, as they're referred to, are viewed and what sort of, how can we take better action to, like you said, handle these situations um, and handle the bias. Yeah. And I think the the thing is, is that not everyone's high risk, not everyone's low risk either. Absolutely. So if we're labeling everyone as high risk and we're putting all of our resources into everyone, no matter what, we are not being efficient. There are certain people that probably, you know, they could do an educational program, maybe have, you know, a discussion. That might be enough. That might be something really embarrassing to them and really a horrible experience not to take away from whatever they've done. And of course, sexual violence can mean a lot of different things. It could mean harassment. It could mean lots of different things can encompass that. But if we are putting everything into everyone, we would probably be much better off to really focus on specific people who are very likely or much more likely to reoffend and commit more sexual violence. Well, it's also, I, I think it's important to that from talking to you about this and and the results you shared with me uh, from the survey, because this topic is so sensitive, people really look at it as a black and white issue when it isn't. Like you said, there's an entire spectrum here of offenses. And so 
you can't just say, you know, black or white. You have to really look at the details and see what happened in order to create an informed decision on how to move forward with the case. Absolutely. And it's a very complicated issue because you do absolutely have one side where there are people who are survivors. Um, This is something they have to live with. Depending on the severity, it could be something that really troubles them. It could affect their ability to continue their education. There's, There's a million different things that could happen with someone, you know, following that. It doesn't end after the offense was made, right? Mm -hmm. It continues. But on the opposite end, we are not going to take every person who's committed sexual violence and lock them up for the rest of their lives. That's not what happens. So there needs to be a discussion of what should we do because that's not really an option. We don't have the resources. Not every student's going to get expelled. Not every student's going to have a black mark on their their record. It's complicated. And I think when we don't talk about it and we label it as black and white, we're kind of failing to address the issue because the violence has already happened. What happens now? Is it going to continue? Is this person going to commit another offense? Are they going to get the support they need to prevent that from happening? So it's uncomfortable. I don't think people like to talk about it because it isn't a nice topic. It doesn't make anyone feel good. But talking about it can actually open the door to like coming up with actual solutions and ways to prevent future harm. Because I do think that there is ways to prevent it from happening. Well, and like you said, you made a very good point how to best support that person. Not because... Like and again, it's 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 tricky tricky topic. But you want to support that person in order to prevent them from committing uh, another act of sexual violence, um, and and often that support is seen as a reward when really it's it's not. It's 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 to keep everybody safer, mm-hmm. including that person, because like you said, it might it might just be a lack of education. Mm-hmm. It might be many things. There, there's a lot of things that can be going on. And I, I mean, I have to take the stance that it's preventable and it's treatable. And oftentimes, you know, the respondents, the only support they're getting is while they're going through the disciplinary hearings. So, you know, someone's come, they've made a disclosure to a university official. They do an investigation. So this will usually involve like the respondent going for counseling and those types of things. But once they've actually been found to have committed the sexual violence, oftentimes there's very little that universities are doing to support them. And let's say they were suspended or expelled, reintegrating them, little to nothing is being done. You know, if someone is coming into a new university, for example, and they have been found to have committed um, an act of sexual violence, it is exceedingly rare for them to be put into some sort of counseling or support program. So it's kind of getting um, left behind a little bit. So I want to talk a little bit about MAVEN. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us what, because I mean, that's also a really sick acronym, (laughs) but but can you tell us what MAVEN is? Tell us what it stands for and and give us some some insight on that. What does it stand for? McEwen, <laughs> Advocate, V, Violence, Education. I'm not sure. Network, Education I th- Network. I think you're right. I- I'm so bad with acronyms. <laughs> not my thing. Um, but really, it's just a peer support network where we do lots of different um, like um, work looking at reducing sexual violence, like in prevention and education. There's also stuff looking at like healthy relationships and looking at consent. So... For example, my role in the last year is we've been like putting on different, um, what's the word I'm looking for here? I think I've seen some of them advertised around campus, like events or talks. Yeah, we do events and talks. So for example, I did one, we did an event with some games where we were talking about stalking. Um, So it was like kind of like a bunch of different like uh, fair games and people had to ask questions about stalking. We also have like during Healthy Relationships Week, we did some stuff on um, different forms of like red flags and relationships. And there's also lots of stuff on consent and we do boothing, but mostly it's just focusing on trying to reduce sexual violence and educate about sexual violence and also kind of promote the office so that people know what resources they have access to here. Um, but it's it's a lovely program. I really, again, I salute you for taking this route in your research because you're not only looking at the after the fact, like you said, the, the act has been committed. What we need to look at is preventing it from happening again and preventing it from happening to others. And 
how better to do that than to create this safe space where people can go and educate themselves and and you can make people aware. Yeah, I think there's like a lack of awareness sometimes around the issue. I think it can be such a private thing where people don't talk about it. And I think when you don't talk about it, it kind of makes it feel like it's not as prevalent as it is. Mm-hmm. Like statistics usually say it's something like a third of women specifically will experience sexual violence while they're in university or post-secondary education. And that's really, really high. Um, some is a little bit lower. Some say one in 10, but it, it really it really varies. So it is a really common issue and it is like so preventable, right? There's so many issues that surround it, you know, a matter of like, why does someone think this will make them feel better? Why do they feel the need to control someone? Like these are things that can be addressed mm-hmm. prior to something happening. And I think sometimes people don't understand the impacts of those acts and the fact that it doesn't just end with the act. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really powerful to have people talk and see and discuss the issues so they know just the prevalence and the impact of them. So I have a question for you that relates to this education that Maven offers, because I did notice that they have um, they have a course and actually many courses that you can take that are online little modules, I guess, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word, that you can that you can take. And it's free for McEwen students and staff uh, to access this. Now, I have to be honest that before this podcast, I didn't even know that existed. Yeah. Do you do you think that this is something that McEwen maybe needs to make more prevalent in in their communications and if not even mandatory as part of the code of conduct well what's really interesting about that is there is the it takes all of us which is the online course and that one looks at consent and bystander intervention and it's a very broad but really focused on like campus sexual violence and the issues um, that surround that i not in my time but before covid it did used to be an in-person, like a class or a workshop, and it was mandatory for some classes. So they would go in and they would do workshops during class time. But then COVID happened and it kind of changed how it works. But I agree, there should be a certain degree of, um, I think it should be mandatory in a lot of ways, even if it's just so that people know what resources they have and what they can do. Because I didn't know that the office existed until someone was like, hey, this is a volunteer program I think you'd be interested in. So there's a lot of support at McEwen if you are experiencing sexual violence um, or have experienced sexual violence. And I wish it was more people are more aware of it, but we do lots of boothing and we try and like be present on campus and hopefully people stop by and see us. But um, unfortunately, it's an office where you don't really know about it until you need to know about it, which is unfortunate. But yeah, I think it's a great program. Well, I really like that the Office of Sexual Violence, I, I, I've i noticed too, like in my research, that it it has really evolved from a place where you only know about it because you have to use it to now talking about healthy relationships. And even, um, like you said, uh, you, you'd mentioned it earlier, um, consent and and looking at things like that and offering these fun mm-hmm. workshops that, that make it a lot more, I guess, welcoming. Absolutely. And I think, you know, like with consent, consent is such like a big talk, especially, you know, now. People get really up in arms when consent is discussed sometimes people think it's like really unsexy and like how are you going to possibly ask for affirmative consent in the moment you're going to kill the moment people get very um for whatever reason they just like it, it really bothers them but I think a lot of it is just like a lack of understanding of what that means you know it's not like a contract is being written it's more just like changing the way you talk to people in those contexts and I think it's something that is improving a lot. Um, but I think it's, it's just change is hard sometimes. So I think it's presented in a really nice way. And I, we try and like engage people with the topic as much as possible, but I wish they had the in-person component. I think that would be really helpful because unfortunately when it's something voluntary, you're kind of capturing a certain person when it's voluntary the people you really want to capture are never going to sign up for that. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So they're they're like, I don't, I don't need to learn about that. So it would be nice if there was something more mandatory and more involved. So uh, just going back to uh, you as a student researcher, mm-hmm. uh, it seems like, like you'd said, you didn't really hear about the office until someone was like, oh, 
you know, you might you might be interested in this. And it was probably to do with your research interests. How has your your experience here as an undergraduate researcher been? Um, I know you're in the honors program, so you you really worked hard to get here. How's your experience been? Have you have you felt like it's been an incredibly fulfilling experience? When I went into into my undergrad, I didn't even understand the possibilities of research. Honestly, I always thought it was like you go in, you do your classes, and you go home, and then you get a degree at the end. I <laughs> I I didn't even I had no concept of the possibilities, and it wasn't until I started looking into the honors program that I was like, oh wow, there's all these all these things I can do. And some people don't like doing research. I love doing research. I think it's really interesting. It's like really creative. It's like a very creative outlet for something, you know, when you're in like doing a science degree, not always the most creative thing. So I, I found research to be really creative. And I, I think I've had just such amazing opportunities to do it. You know, I'm working on my thesis, but also through Sandy's Crime Lab, you know, I'm doing more research in the area of sexual violence, campus sexual violence specifically. And I also did another, uh, like, an independent study. So I've had a great experience doing research. I've really loved it. Well, that's great to hear. Yeah, I, and I mean, like, having access to that crime lab, uh, especially considering that your your research interest is very uh, aligned with Dr. Jung's, I would say. Yes. So that's been probably amazing for you to to be able to be in that environment as well. Yeah, and it's just like the mentorship is really cool because, you know, you can sit in a class all day, but when you actually have someone who's done the work you want to do one day and who has a lot of experience, it's like really, it's really helpful. It's really, um, I feel like I've grown a lot as a researcher over the last two years and I am a lot more excited about it. I think it's, you know, I already came into it interested and now I'm just way more interested. So it's been a, it's been a great experience. So is this something you think you're going to continue on with? Yeah, my plan is to go to graduate school. I'm taking a year off, but I'm doing research the whole time. <laughs> so um, then hopefully apply next year, or I guess this year, ooh, and uh, go in 2024. Wow, 2024. That's very exciting. Mm -hmm. That's so, so yeah, it looks like, uh, it seems as though this has benefited you in the long run in terms of uh, sparking that interest. And like you said, originally coming into the program, I'm going to go to class, go home. <laughs> yeah, it's been like, you know, unfortunately, when you go into a degree, they don't, like, there's no class to really explain, you know, this is what you need to do. This is how you get in grad school. <laughs> this is true. Right? Like, so... I think it's been something that's like really, I feel very prepared for grad school, which is great. I know like there's other people who are like, oh, I don't know if I have all the things I need, but I feel like I've had just all these opportunities to get the experience I need. And I feel like really, really thankful for that and really lucky in a lot of ways. So yeah, it's been a good experience. Oh, that's awesome. I, um, I don't have any more questions for you, but I wondered if you had any advice for people who are looking to get more involved with this action on campus or uh, educate themselves? Um, well, I would always encourage you to go into the Mavens program. Um, they actually are about to start doing interviews or start the application process. It has been really, really rewarding. If it's something you're passionate about, you get to just sit in a room once a week with a bunch of people who are really passionate about it and work with them to try and make the campus like a safer, more welcoming place. So I couldn't say any nicer things about it. Also, I mean, Dr. Jung is doing research all the time on campus sexual violence and other issues of sexual violence. Um, she has volunteers. Um, I'm actually working with three volunteers this semester um, on another project. So that's another option. And also just like looking into the honors program, there's a lot of different researchers who and professors who are doing lots of research that could be kind of in that area, even in sociology as well. I know there's some researchers who are looking at like restorative justice and those types of things all in the area. But yeah, just like keep your eyes open. There's always a way to get involved and a lot of opportunities here. Oh, that's excellent. Well, thank you very much. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure having you on our show today. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. Hello. Welcome back to Research Recasted, the knowledge mobilization podcast. I am Megan Miskimen, and I am here with Renette Schaubert, and we are joined by our guest today, Amy Wildeman. 
Amy is a fourth-year Bachelor of Nursing student currently doing her preceptorship at the Royal Alexandra Hospital. She is being supervised by Dr. Emily Riesdorfer of the Bachelor of Nursing program as she completes her research, which she will be talking to us about on today's episode. So thank you so much for being here with us today, Amy. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about your research? Um, Yeah. So my research is looking at client perceptions of healthcare providers with body art. And basically that means any clients we have in healthcare, like patients or um, family members, I guess it could be as well. And just their views on if their healthcare provider, being a doctor, a nurse, an x-ray technologist has body art like tattoos or piercings that are not necessarily um, like the traditional ear piercings, like a nose piercing or something. And uh, yeah, that's what we're looking into. It's been pretty wild, wild results from a lot of different places, um, some that were pretty surprising. That's actually, so that's a really unique um, study, first of all. Are you able to share any of the interesting things that you found or surprising things that you found from that? Yeah, so um, in some of the smaller sites, we were pretty surprised to see that Um, When healthcare providers aren't as accessible, people actually don't really mind that their healthcare provider has body art um, in like more rural areas. And then obviously other studies in those rural areas also show that people do mind. But um, if, yeah, if there's no healthcare provider available, they'll take what they can get and um, not necessarily in a bad way. And then if um, healthcare providers have a patient long term, actually their patients are more likely to be more accepting of their body art because they can kind of get to know them more on a personal level versus just um, seeing them for maybe a couple hours and then getting shipped off somewhere else. Right. So it's that familiarity and that relationship building that is number one in their eyes versus the the way somebody looks. Yeah, totally. Totally makes sense. So I just want to circle back to this after. But first, I want to ask you how you got into this research. Like what prompted this specific study to you? Where did you find we needed to look at this? Yeah, so I was in um, one of my courses in third year. It was the nursing 341 class. And it's, I think it's introduction to research, but it's basically the first research class we really take as nursing students. And Emmeline kept it super open and basically just said, like, pick a topic you're passionate about and you guys can research it and write me a paper on it. And it was right after COVID had happened. And I thought, I really don't want to do something on COVID. I don't want to do something on the opioid crisis because that's really big right now, too. And I didn't really know what else to talk about. So I actually chatted with my brother about it. And he was like, well, you're telling me all the time that how you look matters as a nurse. So like, what if you went into something a little deeper than just uniform? And I kind of just ran with that idea off of there. And it was, there was more research on it than I thought there would be, but also not a lot of research on it. So it was kind of the perfect amount to write this paper on. That is super cool. I actually have a follow-up question there. Why did your brother tell you that? Like what, what prompted that? What are your thoughts on, on why it matters, uh, what you look like as a nurse? Um, I think he prompted it just through, I always talk about like the body art I have and how sometimes that can relate me really well to patients if they say like, hey, what's that for? Like, that's really cool. Where'd you get it? Or something like that. And I kind of get excited when a patient asks me and vice versa. Like if a patient has a a really cool piece of body art or something and I ask them about it, they usually light up and get really excited about it. So I think that's kind of where it came from. And then I do think it's important to recognize that like your role does matter. So if you have a patient long term, it's a lot easier to form those connections. Whereas if you have a patient short term, like like in the emergency department, you need to form, I guess, not more shallow connections, but just like quicker connections on how to relate to someone. Right. That totally. Yeah, that makes sense because they're in and out sort of thing mm-hmm. yeah, or in and, and on to another department. Yeah, exactly. So back to sort of what you found throughout this research um, coming up to, to completing your paper here. What else have you noticed and, and has there been any other interesting findings? Um, yeah, so we did a scoping literature review and we came up with, uh, I believe it was eight papers. And most of them did have negative connotations with healthcare providers with body art. But looking at lots of the studies, they're done a lot on the same population. So the older adults or like through acute care in emergency departments where you don't get that long-term connection. But as we looked at some articles where they had younger populations or students or they even did one on nursing students, 
they are more accepting of it and more like want to create conversations around it. And I thought that was really interesting as generations change. Obviously, different generations will be okay with different things. Um, Yeah. Do you think that it is more generational or generationally driven? Or do you think it's more culturally driven, I guess? Um, I think it could be both. The other thing that is really important to consider also is like the content of body art. So if someone has a tattoo, there was uh, an example in one of the studies that like, if a nurse comes in with a tattoo of like three skulls or something and your your patient's about to die and they see that, like that could be really negative for them versus like a patient coming in and seeing like flowers or something like they probably won't care as much. So it also could depend on the content that the healthcare provider does have. But at the same time, I think our culture right now is probably, in my opinion, the most accepting of differences that it's ever been. So I think that could be a part of it, but also generationally, it was really interesting to see that in long-term care, patients, if they get to really know you, they won't care if you have body art because they get to know who you are as a person. So I think that could be, I think that's honestly the biggest barrier is just the connections you and how much time you have to form those connections with your patients or clients with whatever you're working in. Um, something else that was really interesting was kind of back to the content spot, but If it was a medical tattoo, everyone was accepting of it. So if you had a tattoo for like, I don't know, I have epilepsy or something, nobody batted an eye at it. So I think it just depends like really what the content is and how long you have to spend with that person. And I guess also their personal views on body art and if they think it's professional or if they think it's not professional, a neck tattoo might be seen as not professional, whereas maybe an arm one nobody's going to really care if you have a tattoo on your upper arm or something like that. Interesting. So you mentioned, you know, different things that you guys were looking at. Can we just review the measures that you were looking at? So so you looked at placement. Does the placement matter? Like you said, a neck is unprofessional versus maybe on an arm. Uh, what about, you know, you looked at age or demographic of the patient population. What are the other things you guys measured? So we also looked at the patient side of things. So if the patient, say, had a nurse with body art, did they attribute that to more caring or less caring, more um, intelligent or less intelligent? Did they find their care was timely or not? So there was also a lot of qualities of the nurse that like patient perceptions could have. And so that was something we looked at as well. Um, Like I said, most of the studies came up with negative connotations. So nurses were less caring. Healthcare providers could have been seen as less intelligent. So that was a big one as well. And then on the other side, um, I think it would be really interesting to look more at, there there was a bit in studies in this, but color versus non-color. And then also location matters as well, because in areas where, say, culturally appropriate piercings are super common, people might not not care as much as, say, if someone went to an area that they're not used to seeing these piercings or like stretched ears, for example, that could be really um, shell shocking, I guess, as a patient. Uh, Whereas if that's the norm for them, it's not going to matter as much. Right. Yeah. And did you find there was a huge uh, difference in rural areas versus the more populated? Um, Yes and no. I think there was only one study on it that we found. And like I said, it was more to do with they don't have any doctors available. So they were kind of happy with any doctor was good to have. I think that would be something that would be really interesting to go deeper into, especially here in Canada with like we have such a diverse, like so many different cultures. I think it would be really interesting to look more into at at our sites in Edmonton for sure. But yeah, that is something that was kind of in the research, but it's not super well studied. Well, and like you said, piercings and tattoos, body modifications, stretched ears, all that stuff, it's becoming so much more prevalent mm-hmm. in our in our current culture and, and local, I would say like local culture, at least in Edmonton, from what I can tell. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like so, so that would be really interesting to sort of see if, like you said, the previous studies have looked at basically the same patient population that were an older generation? Yeah, um, lots of them had the same kind of age groupings or like most of them were done in acute care. So emergency departments or acute care settings where you don't really get to make those connections. Mm-hmm. So I think looking at areas maybe 
Like, for example, in Edmonton, like the cross cancer, if a patient is at the cross cancer, they're more likely to have longer term relationships. So how would that differentiate versus maybe in eMERGE somewhere or in like acute care settings? It's going to it's probably going to be different. I don't see how it couldn't be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, or even like thinking about your family doctor, like you should have a longer hopefully longer standing relationship with a family doctor if you like them. So like, how is that going to matter to you? And especially like looking at different generations, I think, like you said, it could be culturally driven. It could also be generationally driven where in long-term care, where you can make those really long connections with your patients and clients, are they going to be more understanding versus maybe like rurally versus in cities, like in urban settings. Um, I think that would be also, that's something we need to look more into as well. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, So what can our listeners take away from this? Like, how does it apply and where do you see this research going? Um, I think listeners can take away that, well, healthcare providers are always going to look different. It doesn't matter like what setting you're in. We all are going to have our own uniform. I think I kind of relate it back to like when nurses still wore a white uniform with a cap. And then when that changed, I feel like that was a big culture shock to a lot of people. And so I think as body art and body modification becomes more prevalent, it's going to become more and more the norm to see any healthcare provider with it. So just keeping that open mind, I guess, I think, like, I'm sure when nurses switched to wearing, you know, normal scrubs, I'm sure that might have been a bit of a culture shock too. Um, in hospitals now, it's very, very rare. I see even doctors wearing the classic like white coat. So I think it will just, it will come with time. But just knowing that if if you have questions for your healthcare provider, it really doesn't matter what they look like. We've all passed exams to be here. And yeah, just starting those conversations is is the big one. If if you're curious about it, just ask. Yeah, absolutely. Like instead of of, I guess, judging a book by their cover, right? Totally. Yeah. And it's it's really easy. And I, I'm sure anyone you ask who would be your healthcare provider, it's a way for them to create a conversation with you as well. Yeah. And I mean, like, I don't want to assume here, but it feels like this research might be, uh, might be very close to your heart because I've noticed that you have body art yeah, yourself. totally. Um, I think I think it is close to my heart because obviously, yeah, if I have tattoos, it's going to matter in, in the field. Um, but like I said, when patients ask me about it or I, I can make a connection with them and be like, oh, my gosh, you have, I don't know, a tattoo of whatever. I think that's super cool. They usually light up as well. And that just gives us something more to bond over and kind of get to know each other a little bit more. And it's never bad to get to know your patient more and vice versa. I think it's always good to get to know um just create that therapeutic relationship and really, really make it a safe space. Absolutely. And so in your preceptorship at the Royal Alex, have you had any sort of run-ins with patients about your body art? Um, I mean, I've had patients ask about it. Like I said, I never mind if, if someone asked me, but uh, never any negative ones. I've been really, really lucky. I also have a feeling in our culture right now, if, if someone doesn't necessarily agree with having body art, they're probably not going to say much as as much as maybe they would have in the past. But yeah, no, I've been really lucky. All my all my patients have been great. Most of the nurses on my unit are same thing, really good. Um, I think it would also be interesting to look at the nurse to other healthcare provider relationship with body art. Um, but I've I've had no no issues at all. So I don't see it as a problem. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And I mean, like like we have both said earlier in this in this episode that it's sort of becoming the norm. Mm-hmm. And it has become the norm, I would say, since the 2000s. So yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. That's all the questions I have for you today. But did you have anything else you wanted to add before we wrapped up today's episode? Um, I don't have anything to add. Like I said, if you ever have questions about your healthcare provider or, or their body art, just ask. We're all super, super excited when you ask us about it. And it just it makes more of a safe space. And that's that's really the big takeaway message I want to give to people. Awesome. Thank you very much, Amy. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for today's episode of Research Recasted. If you think that this podcast can change the world, you can visit Research Recasted on your favorite podcast platform to find new episodes every two weeks. Don't forget to check us out on Instagram at Research Recasted, where you can leave a like, give us a follow, or send a message if you have any follow-up questions from today's episode. 
This has been Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast brought to you by the Office of Research Services and the Faculty of Fine Arts and Communications here at McEwen University. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by Megan Miskimen and Renette Schaubert. Music is by Dylan Cave, with sound design and editing by Renette Schaubert. Research, copy editing, and scripting is by Megan Miskimen, and our executive producer is Ray Barie.